Welcome to this shifting moment. This is a podcast in which we're seeking a profound shift in the way that we react to things. We do that through weekly discussions and responses from some of the great thinkers and spiritual writers. And my name is Richard, and I'm a spiritual coach and a mindfulness teacher with over 20 years of experience in treatment and private practice. And my name is Josh, and I'm an ordained pastor and a writer with a history of directing spiritual communities. We want you to be a part of everything that we do. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and suggestions. Please contact us at 424-341-3860 and follow us on This Shifting Moment on Instagram and Facebook. Limiting Our Lives I came to, to the life of a spiritual path because I basically had to. My life had turned itself upside down, and unless I did something radical, I might not survive. It wasn't an easy road for me, and I was somewhat cynical about the path I knew I needed in order to survive. I gravitated to an old way of thinking about what a spiritual path meant and was even somewhat cynical, thinking I knew what I was doing, that I had been down this road before as a child, and it was okay, but not really a big deal. Ultimately, I was traveling down the road of some somewhat cynical view of life and spirituality, parading itself as reality. Although I had some beliefs that there was some kind of loving essence, I found myself mostly in the Western world viewing life strictly in terms of what was verifiable. A worldview in which we only believe in what we can, can be scientifically verifiable. We are all bio, we are we are a biological process that participates in life for about 90 years and then we die. A worldview that is essentially all about limits in which we need to make the most of what little time we have. This worldview tends to dismiss spiritual beliefs as merely wishful thinking. A more mystical vision of any sort of internal dance of loving communion is just too good to be true. I found this pessimistic view of reality to be more in line with atheism and those believing that only what can be measured is real, which I found to be a pretty miserable way to view the world. I came to my own recovery because my life was miserable and I didn't think I could survive. So I didn't really want to trade one way of living for another that appeared equally miserable. I didn't travel this far to let the limitations of life win. We will lose our health, our relationships, and, and, and our very lives. The Buddha said this. He said, life is suffering. And ignoring that aspect of life doesn't make it go away or make it any easier. Human beings don't like limits, including the ideological limits that tell us that this is all there is. The perspectives I heard felt devastating to me, and there was a temptation to go back to what I was doing and hope for the best. I continued to seek, as they say in the literature of 12-step recovery. I didn't know what I was missing, but I started reading and exploring, and I began to hear a different different perspectives on the spiritual life. I started to read about Christian mystics and the Zen Buddhists and the Sufis and Kabbalah and exploring some kind of heart practice perspectives on religion, and I was hooked. 
I had to remember that this is my life and I wanted to make the most of it. So I considered that it was up to me what I believed. If I dared to believe something different, my life might feel different. If I dared to believe that ultimate meaning, destiny, and the purpose of life is to love and to be loved in some expanding, eternal, divine human communion, then everything changes, literally immediately. Despair and cynicism begin to dissipate. The challenges of life can be overcome as a part of life, not the limits of life. It felt easier to take responsibility for cleaning up my own messes because there is more reason and purpose for doing so. This is so contrary to what our Western culture sees or believes today. Even those committed to spiritual or religious life, to be able to accept the idea that life is totally and radically about love. It's okay if people are dismissive. I get it. We're so consumed with power and prestige and position or even knowledge. But if we were to dare, if we were to really take the leap and orient our lives unconditionally toward love, you might consider that you can attain a loving measure of all the other things as well. I have come to believe and to see that when we orient our lives to anything other than love, no matter what we gain, we risk losing out on the fullness of what is possible by orienting ourselves toward love. Wow. I'm just make sure I wasn't on mute. Wow. That's beautiful, Richard. But I have a lot written down, but like I always like to do before I kind of bogart the conversation. Is there anything that after reading that kind of popped up? No, I mean, I, I haven't, re- I haven't read that in a while. And, um, it's, I didn't, I had forgotten that it's a little bit about my, a little bit about my own journey. Right. But I was going to say, I mean, that's the thing that stood out to me. And the thing I'm really curious about, um, just knowing you and your story. And then also but that if you've listened to the podcast at all, you kind of know Richard's story a little bit, you know, mine a little bit, but like the, mm-hmm. um, the thing that's really fascinating to me is understanding. Cause we got a glimpse there <laughs> of, of the before Richard, which was, you said you had an old way of thinking of what a spiritual path was. And I'm curious, not what the new way of thinking was, but what was the old way that you used to think that spiritual path looked like? It was, you know, it was, you know, I I grew up Episcopalian, you know, I grew up an altar boy. And I I think for me, the old way of, um, of a spiritual life was that there was a God over here and that I'm needing to relate to that God in some way and needing to understand what that means for my life and um i to me i think it's really been the difference between a dualistic perspective and a non-dualistic perspective and that's that's the the seeking that happened for me when i started studying the great mystics and the great the great sufis in the, the in kabbalah and zen buddhists and and stuff like and i was hearing in the meetings what I was hearing in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous was a dualistic perspective of religion and spirituality, and um, and I, I, I it was that was a struggle for me, and you know, and now I've come to believe that um, at least in the study that I've done and the reading that I've done is that the twelve step model is more of a, a non dual perspective. Uh, but w- we don't really hear that in the rooms, totally. you know, at least I, at least I haven't. That's exactly right. 
Well, explain for people, because I think that might be, um, there may be a missing gap there. Like what, what dualistic thinking looks like versus non-dualistic thinking. So dualistic thinking is kind of the norm that we sort mm-hmm. of all start in default mode in the West. In. Well, it, it's <laughs> so really what, this what perspective that, like? that I'm here and God is over there. God is, there's a separation between me and my higher power and God. And the, the struggle that happens, I think, in recovery, and this is just my perspective, and I'm sure there'll be people out there that might have their own opinions, but a non-dual perspective is really that I carry the essence of something greater than myself within me, which allows me to connect with you. It's not, I'm not my own higher power. I'm I'm not that, but I carry that essence. I'm able to access that. That's the journey from the head to the heart for me that they talk about in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the the great um, Trappist monk Thomas Merton talked about it endlessly. He pointed to his head and said the false self. He pointed to his heart and he said the true self. And so when I'm able to access my life through the heart, through my heart center, and that's what you know the Zen Buddhists do. That's what they do in Kabbalah. That's what the Sufis do. That's what the great mystics would do. And and again, it talks just about what that reading is about. When I access my higher power through the heart, I am access. I am accessing something that's loving. I love that so much, and I think that doesn't get talked about enough in terms of just. I'm I'm talking fast right now because I don't want to lose the point even. But yeah, like I, it it doesn't get talked enough about that in in recovery circles or even in like religion that you know it's a it's a yes and it's a both and it's a it's a it holds it all right and and Mm -hmm. i think when we're when we're actually acting in our higher power from our heart center and not our head center it's not a belief issue and i think that's the big thing that people get caught up on is i can't believe that i'm like okay cool (laughs) i was just watching last night i've been watching this ken burns documentary on the holocaust because i've been sick and that's what i do in my free time (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but i i watched it and america at a certain point this is called the u.s and the holocaust but america at a certain point did not believe like that this was going on and over 5 million people had already been murdered and they didn't believe mm-hmm. it. So that's further proof that your belief doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> it matter. No bar on reality whatsoever. What matters is, is actually what you're, what you're doing. And I think when the heart center, it's, it's not necessarily a belief in this thing, but it's a trust in this thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think the word and the language from a non-dual perspective is I believe from a dual perspective is I believe in God from mm-hmm. a non-dual perspective is I'm I acting. trust God. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, and I again, trust this thing. It, right, right. It's more about the actions I'm taking. And in the reading we did last week about Eddie Hillison, that's what she was talking about. She was accessing something from within that gave her a sense of comfort. Mm. This mm. inter and you know, and that's what we talk about with we're accessing this this internal life that we're um that we're learning to find can be a refuge for us. And I love that language of that internal life being this, that I think, who's it, uh, who calls it an interior castle? I think it's, um, uh, yeah, Teresa, Teresa of Avalon. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, it's an mm-hmm. interior castle or, yeah, um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Keschel calls that the, uh, something, uh, the tabernacle of the soul or something. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's your, it's your internal world that, 
that you have access to at any time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think and that's it, the other non-dual thing is that it doesn't have to be in a church. It doesn't have to be in a between a confessional booth, between you and a priest. It can be anywhere and, at any point. <laughs> and and the thing about it is, and the thing that I think a lot of people in 12-step recovery struggle with is how do I pray to that? And so, uh, you know, and basically you're praying to your higher self. You're 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 asking for strength, wisdom, and willingness. They talk about that a lot in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. May I be honest? May I find the willingness to take action on behalf of myself and my mm. fellows? That's the whole impetus behind the regular spiritual life too. But it, it just it it has to happen in those rooms of recovery. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's what's that's what's kind of cool about even if you're not in addiction or you, you don't struggle with that at all, studying the stuff of AA really helps you kind of understand like this non-dual thinking. Because again, we don't get that representation a lot if you go visit those rooms and stuff. But really the heart behind it is, yeah, it's it's all counterintuitive, paradoxical thinking. Mm -hmm. Upwards is down or down mm -hmm. is up. All of that kind of stuff is true. Um, because yeah, it's not, it's, it's wisdom and wisdom is always going to have that flavor to it rather than self-help, which is just going to be informative. Exactly. And I, it in my brain and, and go. Right. And that's why it's and I, in one ear and out the other. <laughs> and I think that we, what we find a lot in a lot of the treatment facilities and a lot of the, 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 um, the modalities are these feel good practices, you know, that are focused on if I could just feel good and, we can, I can label myself as spiritual, you know, and, and that's not really the work, mm. you know, it's, you know, feeling good is not really the work. The, the real work is feeling everything. That's it. And realizing that it's all spiritual, but and, yeah. and that's the, and that's, that's the that, key of that non-dual thinking is that everything belongs. It's not just these little things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, and that's what I would encourage people to see. It's like, if you're focused on feeling good all the time mm. and, and you're able, and you're labeling that as self-improvement or self-help, I mean, that if that's your focus, then it, you might just be living in the top half of life. Right. Right. No. And I think, I think you talked, you talked about that big time in terms of despair and cynicism and then just the Buddhist idea that life is suffering, right? Like that yeah. that's a, and I love that. I, I think if you actually look hard enough in like every world religion, there's that in it, right? But it's not as clear as Buddhism. <laughs> Buddhism's thought process is really clear out in the front that just says life is suffering. That's a part of the ride. Like you're just going to have this. The point is to work on that, work through it and help relieve that for other people. It, it's not to remain in pity because the, the dualistic mind says, if I'm suffering, there must be something wrong with me. Exactly. There must be something inherently broken with again. And that's, that's what we call bad theology. That's you're, you're born, you're born this awful thing and then you die and you go burn forever. Right. <laughs> that's not, that's not actually anywhere. Uh, if you really look close enough, what it is, is like, it's, it's, it, it all, again, it all belongs. It's all a part of the deal. It's um, all inclusive. And that, and I think that's what attracted you and I to working. Yes. Well, together. what, what flagged me when you said an old way of thinking is that's where you found me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's the, it, in that moment, uh, what I was really struggling with in my own recovery was this idea that I was an alcoholic and also a pastor. Like how can both those things be true mm -hmm. at the same time? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or just not even a pastor anymore, but just a, a person of faith, like a Christian, mm -hmm. how could both of those things be possible? And that's what the non-dual thinking gives you. It gives you the ability to hold both to say, 
Yeah, exactly. I'm an alcoholic and, I, and that sucks. And, and I, I have this I, thing over here. And, like, and, and, but I wouldn't even say I'm an alcoholic and that sucks. I would say I'm an alcoholic and how wonderful that is because my capacity to understand another who might be struggling increases. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it has given me the gift of understanding. That's it. And yeah. And then moving past that, even past understanding, it's given me the mm-hmm. gift of like non-judgmental thinking. Exactly. <laughs> now I'm not going to judge others for those things. And really that struggle, that dualistic struggle, like for me, at least that was just all self-judgment. It was like my mind turned on itself. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the battle I was having was with no one but me. Right. And and that's, yeah. that's a dualistic perspective. And and when and, we have that mindset, it's really difficult for us to, to bust out of it. Um, yeah. And and that's what I talk about here is like I um I had to remember that this is my life and I wanted to make the most of it. So I considered that it was up to me what I believed. If I dared to believe something different, my life might feel different. And that sounds like it's easy to write that out, but knowing that you lived that out, right? It sounds mm-hmm. so easy, but that's a truly brave and difficult thing to do to actually say, hey, wait, I'm gonna think differently (laughs) just think Mm -hmm. about that that's a huge pattern shift and it takes a lot of bravery it takes a lot of bravery to go i'm gonna go against my status quo and and move into something and by doing that by the way is where you probably moved out of despair Mm -hmm. i just i just found this out i've always been using despair as like a definition of despair is just like it's a crummy thing right (laughs) if you're in despair you're in tragedy you're in loss you're in whatever um, but when I actually looked at the definition of despair, what it means, and my favorite definition of it is that this day will look exactly the same as tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So like this, and th- it never changes. That's despair is that my life will never change. All of it's going to be the same. <laughs> and so you saying, I'm going to think a different way. That's the first step out of despair because it, goes, it really is. I'm not yeah. going to let this pattern continue. I'm going to hop in the middle of it. If I dared to believe that ultimate meaning, destiny, and the purpose of life is to love and be loved in some expanding, eternal, divine human communion, then everything changes. Mm. Literally, immediately. Mm. Mm. And this this is an immediate shift. This is not like a long shift that has to happen. It's just a shift in the way that we see everything. Mm. It happens instantaneously. Repeat that. Yeah. Repeat that line um, for us all. If I dare to believe that ultimate meaning, destiny, and the purpose of life is to love and to be loved in some expanding, eternal, divine human communion, then everything changes. Literally, literally, immediately. I mean, I think you're you're moving from cynicism to faith. You're moving from cynicism to and that's what faith, if, if I could, I'd love to pull that as a definition of faith, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's what that is. It's, mm-hmm. it's stepping out in unbridled faith. <laughs> so that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Do you want to yeah. Oh, yeah, go for it? No, I think, and I, you know, I, I can tell you that, um, that in my experience, this is, can be difficult to share in the rooms of, of AA. Hmm. We'll go, and, yeah, talk. I'd love that. <laughs> I mean, it's like an expand button on that. But, yeah. but you know, you know what? If if you're out there and you're struggling with AA and struggling with the God concept or struggling with the spiritual path or whatever you have, this is your work. 
This is your work. We can't tell somebody what to believe. It ultimately boils down to um, our actions. Are the actions I'm taking loving or are they not loving? Because if you're not taking loving actions towards yourself or towards other people, your road on recovery is going to be difficult. This is your work. And um, and it is a shift in perspective. And we might we might we might not be hearing it in certain areas of the country. And, and that's OK. Nobody else has to feel the same way we feel. But this is your life. And I know that for me, living here in Los Angeles, I had to go out and share my my stuff. I'm I, I don't wave the flag or anything, but um, I, you know, luckily I gravitated to a, a a few people that were um, uh, that kind of got what I was talking about, and um, it's it's uh, it's been a wonderful journey. I'm going to read this again. Okay, limiting our lives. I came to the life of a spiritual path because I basically had to. My life had turned itself upside down, and unless I did something radical, I might not survive. It was not easy. It was not an easy road for me. And I was somewhat cynical about the path that I knew I needed in order to survive. I gravitated to an old way of thinking about what a spiritual path meant and was even somewhat cynical, thinking I knew what I was doing. I had been down this road before as a child and it was okay, but not really, but not really a big deal. Ultimately, I was traveling down the road of somewhat cynical view of life and spirituality parading itself as reality. Although I had some beliefs that there was some kind of loving essence, I found myself mostly in the Western world viewing life strictly in terms of what was verifiable, a worldview in which we only believe in what can be scientifically verifiable. We are a, we are a biological process that participates in life for about 90 years and then we die a worldview that is essentially all about limits in which we need to make the most of what little time we have, this worldview tends to dismiss spiritual beliefs as merely wishful thinking. A more mystical vision of any sort of eternal dance of loving communion is just too good to be true. I found this pessimistic view of reality to be more in line with atheism and those believing that only what can be measured is real which I found to be a pretty miserable, miserable way to view the world. I came to my own recovery because my life was miserable and I didn't think I could survive. So I, I didn't really want to trade one way of living for another that appeared equally miserable. I didn't travel this far to let the limitations of life win. We will lose our health. We will lose relationships in our very lives. The Buddha said this, he said, life is suffering. And ignoring that aspect of life doesn't make it go away or make it any easier. Human beings don't like limits, including the ideological limits that tell us that this is all there is. The perspectives I heard felt devastating to me. And there was a temptation to go back to what I was doing and hope for the best. I continued to seek, as they say in the literature of 12-step recovery. I didn't know what I was missing, but I started reading and exploring and I began to hear a different, I began to hear different perspectives on the spiritual life. I started to read about the Christian mystics and the Zen Buddhists, the Sufis and Kabbalah. 
and explored some of the heart practice perspectives on religion, and I was hooked. I had to remember that this is my life, and I wanted to make the most of it, so I considered that it was up to me what I believed. If I dared to believe something different, my life might be different. If I dared to believe that ultimate meaning, destiny, and the purpose of life is to love and to be loved in some expanding, eternal, divine human communion, then everything changes, literally, immediately. Despair and cynicism begin to dissipate. The challenges of life can be overcome as a part of life, not the limits of life. It felt easier to take responsibility for cleaning up my own messes because there's more reason and purpose for doing so. This is so contrary to what our Western culture sees or believes today, even those committed to a spiritual or religious life, to be able to accept the idea that life is totally and radically about love. It's okay if people are dismissive, I get it. We are so consumed with power and prestige and position or even knowledge. But if I were to dare, if I were to really, if I were to really take the leap and orient my life unconditionally towards love, I might discover that you can attain the loving measure of all the other things as well. I have come to believe and to see that when we orient our lives to anything other than love, no matter what we gain, we risk losing out on the fullness of what is possible by orienting toward love.